Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How has uh, how's your week been? It's been all right. I spoke to you the other day on Sunday and uh, it sounded idyllic. You were cooking the Sunday lunch. Do you take on that role? Are you the roast guy in your family? Yeah, I, I, since um, the little matter of losing the general election, I've had more time on my hands. And so I've definitely, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm chef supreme, but I can, <laughs> you know... I can sort of rustle up a rose. And are you a recipe follower? Or yeah, you- total recipe follower. But, but I think the interesting thing is that if you're a sort of culinary dummy like me, mm. if you follow a recipe and the recipe is good enough, it can turn out all right. Yeah. So I've learned to bake this cheesecake. Have I mentioned the cheesecake? It, it, it's come up on occasion. It came, yes. up, I think it came up in episode one. <laughs> yep. Um, so, but again, as long as you have the recipe, it's okay. Are your family sick of this cheesecake, but they, they're being polite? No, I, we, we've sort of, it's, we, we don't, I don't make it that hard. <laughs> right. How's your week been? My, my week has been fine. I'm, I'm looking forward to Halloween. My wife is American, so Halloween is a big thing with her. Um, so we're, we're going to carve pumpkins. And, really? Yeah, and get stuff in for the neighbourhood kids. How, how do you approach it in your family? Uh, I think my kids dress up a bit, but I don't, it's, not, it's not sort of mega, it's not mega. My, my son's birthday, Sam, is on November the 7th. And so that's kind of a bigger event. You're not going to make that cheesecake and stick candles in it, are you? <laughs> I promise you, it'll be a birthday cake. I'm not guaranteeing it will be homemade, but it'll be a birthday cake. Would you Would you go on Bake Off if that came up? Definitely not. I've been asked. Have you really? Celebrity Bake Off, yeah. How many of those things have you been asked about? A number. <laughs> Is there anyone that you I haven't... got asked to go not in the jungle, but on the jungle commentary bit. 
Really? Yeah. But surely that's that's much better because you get to go on a flashy holiday to Australia, but you don't have to eat eat bugs. No, I think it's done. I think it's done from Neesden or somewhere. <laughs> no, no, no offense to Neesden, but I mean it, you don't get to go to Australia. Right, so um, we should talk about what the theme of today's episode is because uh, it's it's a hot topic. It's a contentious topic. We're talking about drugs, um, and uh, you know, is the war on drugs working? Many people think not. Yeah. Uh, what should we be doing instead of what we're doing at the moment? Is there a case for de- decriminalisation, uh, and if so, of what? What can we learn from experiences around the world? Uh, we'll be talking to Sam Kamen, who is, this is a great job that many people will think, Professor of Marijuana Law at Denver University. We shall have to ask him how he, what his qualifications were. He, he does actually have serious qualifications. He was on the uh, governor's um, uh, committee looking at how you implemented the law in Colorado in 2013. He's obviously written and thought a lot about this issue. And we'll also be talking to Neve Eastwood, Executive Director of Release, which is a charity that gives legal and therapeutic advice to people who use drugs. They've been going 50 years uh, this year. They're about to celebrate their 50th anniversary. She's someone who knows a lot about the subject. I'm just imagining what the students that the professor of marijuana law must must be like. We maybe we should ask him that. Too. A lot of latecomers, you would have imagined. Maybe, that's, yeah. maybe that's true. Um, it's it's interesting because this is a topic that I think people talk about a lot, but politicians don't talk about a lot. When, when you were leader, is it something you're just scared well, of? Well, isn't that there's that phrase in an American phrase, the third rail? You know, it's like you know you electrocute yourself if you kind of go near this right. topic, and it's a bit. It is a bit like that. The, the 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 funny thing is that when I first became leader, I thought to myself, look, this is an issue that needs looking at. And I, I toyed with the idea, and I slightly kicked myself for not having done so, of saying that Cameron and Clegg and I should get together on it. On and, what? Or get together to think about was... You know, oh, not on a specific party approach. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, um, and... Uh, somehow I thought, you know, Cameron had issues about this from his past. I thought it's just not going to be something he's necessarily going to kind of go into. To, to be fair to Nick Clegg, he has taken up the issue since um, uh, since he, he, he stood down as leader of the Liberal Democrats. And um, you have an old friend coming to visit. I do. Aisha Hazarika, um, who is a successful comedian, podcaster herself. She worked for Harriet Harman. She was the chief of staff to Harriet Harman, but she was also the person that did Prime Minister's questions with me. And um, she suffered many, many, many hours uh, of so, pain and grief. So uh, she, she would give you the zingers in advance? She would give me the zingers that I'd failed to deliver them or deliver them <laughs> in a sort of kind of, you know, slightly clunky way, yeah. as I'm sure she'll tell us. Would she shout at you if you delivered something badly? No, she was incredibly nice about it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, after Prime Minister's questions... You know, you don't really don't want to be told you really screwed that up. <laughs> so people were sort of tended to be nice. Ooh, come on, you know, I think that went pretty well. Come, you know. come out of the bathroom, eh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> oh, it's a nightmare. Actually, it's, if there's one thing that is good about not being leader of the Labour Party, it is not having to do prime minister questions. Honestly, <laughs> I put that actually number one on the list of. Cameron said to me when I first got the job, he said. You'll you'll get to a Wednesday when Parliament isn't sitting, and you'll wake up in the morning and you'll think, "Thank God it's not Prime Minister's <laughs> questions." And sure enough, he was right. Um, so, so that's Aisha. And 
We should do our reasons to be cheerful. Do you want to What's go? yours? Well, you I'll, I'll go first. I so, think yours is so exciting. It's, it's genuinely exciting. So last week... I think it's a moment, really, isn't it? It's definitely a moment in, in my life. Um, last week, I mentioned that when I was 13 years old, I'd written into your Sinclair, the ZX Spectrum magazine, um, with my Desert Island Discs with a K my favourite computer games and I was supposed to win a prize and it never arrived and I said I'd love to see that again but I don't I don't have the back issues don't know if such a thing exists would we need to go to the British Library anyway uh, we received an email from Steve McCartney in Dundee who says hi Jeff and Ed further to your your Sinclair conversation and poor Jeff not receiving his games I can confirm that in fact he was only due three games and a badge he would have got Ollie and Lisa, Gauntlet and the classic Paperboy. I've linked a PDF of the very magazine in question um, as evidence, along with Jeff's top games list and his mini reviews of each and an amazing smiling baby photo. And and sure enough, here it is. It's pretty exciting. It's, it? I feel like I'm time travelling. So there's there's me as a baby. I mean, I was adorable, wasn't I? You, you didn't send in a picture of yourself. It's because as a, even as a teenager, I was kind of uncomfortable and I thought, oh, I don't want to send an awful photograph of myself. So you were sort of anticipated social media, didn't you? Were some people put sort of on Twitter their pictures of themselves as a kid or... Yeah. Maybe you I were should... a man ahead of your time, I was. Really. I, should, I should have just sent in a, a picture of an egg. You should have. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And and anyway, it goes through my uh, top eight games. Well, give us, give us some of your favourites. So at number one, Space Harrier. I write... Uh, the 13-year-old me writes, The speed and detail in this are amazing. The dragon's great, and I love it when your character falls painfully to his doom. Well, go on, give us another one. Um, Batman, my mm-hmm. first 3D game. And what a game! Smooth graphics and cute, well-animated nasties. The puzzles drove me batty. Batty is a word that, if you'd said, have you ever used the word batty in your life? It's, it's the kind of word I would be using. It's a bit like crumbs, <laughs> isn't it? It is, yeah. So maybe we can revive batty as well as... Um, crumbs bomb jack a brilliant conversion i spell brilliant b-e-r-i-l-l-i-a-i-a-n-t so um, even then you had a sort of slightly wacky twinkle in your yeah, eye yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, go on what give well, us the last one here's on the, list. the last one and this yes go this, on i think it's time for some disclosure this is humiliating the last one on my list i'll give you the description first it says well wouldn't you if you were all alone on a desert island to which the editor put in brackets, no, I wouldn't. Ed. Yeah. It's uh, Samantha Fox's strip poker. What was I thinking of? What were you thinking? I mean... Do you think you were trying to be sort of one of the lads? Do you think you thought, <laughs> you think you thought this is, this is going to sort of increase my street cred in Macclesfield? Maybe. I mean, I'm not sure that your Sinclair is the forum <laughs> to be one of the lads that increase yeah, your street probably cred. probably that's true, actually. Um, also, given how blocky and Lego-like the graphics on a ZX Spectrum were, <laughs> I can't imagine, I can't remember the game, but I can't imagine that Samantha Fox's trip poker would be that tantalising. No, yeah, I I didn't play it myself, so I'm I'm quite humiliated about that, and that's something from my past. Anyway, it's very, it's, yeah. it is very. Um, Can I just say I've been on a journey since then? It is very exciting. They've even got the this month's top twenty titles, don't they? And I don't really, I can't be honestly say that I remember that many. Can you give us a few in the style of I don't know Alan Freeman or Bruno Brooks? Greetings, greetings. Uh, what is it? You know, pop pickers. Pop pickers greetings, yeah. pop pickers. At number five, up from number sixteen, it's it's one eighty from Mastertronic. At four, it's a new entry, Agent X, also from Mastertronic. At number three, up from nine, it's Paperboy from Elite. 
at number two, down from last week's number one, Gauntlet from US Gold. And this week's number one, up from number two, after 17 weeks in the chart, it's Ollie and Lizza from Firebird. Never mind. What Radio- do you think about that? Never mind Radio 2. You should be auditioning for Radio 1. I should, yes. definitely. So there you go. Uh, so that's mine. I mean, how, how can you top that? I can't. Um, so what's my reason? Mm. It is... Well, it's actually a slightly more serious, uh, <laughs> slightly more serious one. Um, so I made a film about a year ago for the Victoria Derbyshire programme about a company called Bright House, Boo Hiss, because they're a company that sells white goods at vastly inflated prices to pretty vulnerable customers who don't have anywhere else to go yeah. often. Uh, it's, it was a big issue in my constituency, which is why I made the film. Uh, I was working with the credit union to try and provide alternatives. Anyway, 18 months or a year or 18 months on, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, have thrown the book, is maybe too strong by putting it, thrown a sort of thin-ish book at Bright House, but at least they've done something. They fined them about 15 million quid wow. for uh, basically selling to people who couldn't afford it, failing to return goods after people who wanted to cancel them, that, that sort of thing. And... uh so it's a sort of it's a it's a, some kind of success that some action has been taken, and actually I think Bright House have had to clean up some of their practices, you know. But it's, it's one of the great injustices I think that the poorest people in the country pay the most. You know, you're talking about paying sometimes you know sometimes as much as like two thousand pounds for a telly or a sofa, mm-hmm. you know, nine hundred pounds for a washing machine when that washing machine you, or a similar one you could get for three hundred pounds on the high street, mm-hmm. but they can't afford the money up front. And so there's further to go. We want to see a price cap so that they, like you have it with um, with payday lenders who, who lend money, uh, like the Wongas and so on, uh, and other action taken. But it, but it's, but it's a, it's some element of progress. That's great. So it's good. So that's your reason to be. But so that is my reason to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Neve Eastwood, who is the director of Release. Neve, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. And you've got your 50th anniversary coming. Let's get the plug out of the way. You've got your 50th anniversary it's coming. It's the main reason I'm here exactly, today. Exactly, <laughs> I know. Uh, coming up next week. T- tell us about what you're doing for That's that. That's right. Release is 50 years old this year. We were established in 1967. We've been delivering legal services and drug services uh, to the public since then and campaigning for reform of the drug laws. To celebrate that, we have the Museum of Drug Policy coming over from New York. Uh, the museum is going to feature art and installation that uh, demonstrate the damage caused by the war on drugs. So it's going to be a really exciting three days. And it's free. Very good plug. So let, let's get into the substance of the uh, discussion. Maybe you can just set out for our listeners, just to begin with, the, the basics from your point of view. And it's obviously a controversial subject, but what is the harm of the current approach to dr- to drugs here in the UK, would you say? So I think the main problem with uh, drug policy in the UK is that it seems to be obsessed around um, evidencing the success of its policy based on the number of people 
using drugs. So for example, every time we challenge the Home Office on the approach that they're currently taking, so a criminal justice approach, they say drug use is working, drug use is falling. Now that's a much more complex um, analysis to go into and actually this government hasn't been responsible for any falls in drug use. So we can talk about that if you'd like to. Um, but I think that a drug policy should be measured uh, by its harms. So are we reducing harms? And at the minute we are not. So for example, drug-related deaths are at an all-time high. They exceed traffic fatalities. Uh, heroin deaths in particular have increased uh, by 109% in the last four years, with over 1,200 deaths recorded last year. And the reason that the government um, doesn't seem to be that interested in this issue is because of the, the profile of those people who are dying. These are the most um, marginalised, excluded in society, um, often come from uh, areas of, of deprivation. Uh, and so the problem is that the policy isn't working. I, you know, at the end of the day, if, if, if a few more people are using drugs and they're using drugs and causing no harm to anybody else, I don't see a problem with that. If it saves one life, that is, that's a good outcome. So and that's you, where we should be. And focusing. you're talking about the the problem of the number of deaths, which is obviously a big, big concern. Mm. There's also this issue, isn't there, of the criminalisation of people? We're still is it is it eighty thousand people a year? Well, it's come down largely because of reduction in stop and searches. So it's down to around forty to 40, fifty thousand people 000. a year. But that's you know we've estimated that's one point five million over the last fifteen years, and we have to look at the profile of who's being policed. So again, I mean the law is not being applied equitably. It's mainly focused against people who are living in areas of deprivation, in poverty, and those who are from the black community. So research that we undertook with LSE uh, showed that black people were six times likely to be more stopped and searched for drugs, six times more likely than white people to be stopped and searched for drugs. And yet they use drugs at a lower rate. So we actually think drug policing is used as a form of social control. And we were able to map this out in London, where we could show that the intensity of stop and search for drugs occurred in areas of deprivation, and the higher rates of racial disparity occurred in more affluent areas. And I think whilst we can't make a conclusion, there is an interesting discussion to be had. And we have to recognise that 60% of all stop and searches are for drugs. And when we talk about drugs, we're talking about low-level street possession, personal use, offences. And that's backed up by Her Majesty's Inspectorate for Constabulary. So the, the watchdog, the police watchdog. So, so there's the issue of death, there's the issue of criminalisation, although you think it's less than it was, but still an issue and, and, and sort of uh, the racial aspect to that. What else is a concern? I mean, what about the sort of the gang culture, the, the where the money gets made, how that money gets used, or, or the, the criminality associated with it? You mean the criminality associated with it is largely as a result of it being a prohibited market. So the fact that it's illegal is what creates all of these harms. Um, and in fact, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in 2008 said that they recognised there were unintended consequences of prohibition. And they said that the market was uh, driven by huge financial incentives. We're talking about a market that's worth $500 billion a year. You I mean, it's one of the most lucrative markets in the world. And we have completely handed it over to a unregulated, uncontrolled, largely dominated by criminals who use violence to exert control over that market. So it's the policy again that creates the harm. This is not the drugs. It's how governments have decided to deal with these substances. And what do you say, just so we cover it, to the 
argument of the Home Office that the number of people using drugs has declined over the last decade, including the number of people using cannabis. Okay, so the decline in drug use occurred um, in the 2000s, in the noughties, under the previous Labour government. Um, It actually occurred, uh, that decline is specifically related to cannabis, not to any of the other drugs, and certainly not to the Class A drugs. Um, And that decline occurred when the Labour government reclassified cannabis from a class B to a class C drugs. So the penalties were reduced. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the legal framework was a reason why that decline occurred. I think it's about the type of cannabis that became available on the market and also a change in young people's behaviour around online activities. So I think, you know, it's complex. Uh, Since 2010, class A drug use has actually increased. Uh, So we've seen an increase in cocaine, we've seen an increase in MDMA use, and both of those drugs we're seeing really high rates of purity. So we're seeing street purchase uh, or or street deals of MDMA and cocaine uh, reaching 80, 85, 90% purity, which is astounding. So you mean, trying to repress supply does not work. That's the point. And the government knows this. So I I hear um, a lot about change in other countries. You hear Portugal banded about and some of the marijuana stuff that's happening in in America. It it feels that we're moving very slowly by comparison. Why why isn't there the political will here that there is in other countries? Well, I would say we're not only moving slowly, we're moving backwards, which is very frustrating from our point of view. Um, I think the issue mainly is, well, there's different drivers for this. So, um, in the UK, at a national level, this is seen as a third rail issue. There are more, there are more important political debates to be had, and politicians don't want to expend political capital on the issue of drugs. Um, I think that's short-sighted because I think there is some public appetite for reform. Uh, but we are seeing, you know, green shoots of reform at a local level. So local uh, police forces who've decided to deprioritize uh, cannabis policing, namely Durham and Avon and Somerset, who now got diversion schemes in place. We're seeing drug consumption, the first drug consumption room potentially being established in Glasgow, which is in a response to a crisis in Glasgow where there has been an increase in HIV rates amongst injecting drug users. And crisis is often the, the push for reform. So in Portugal, for example, decriminalisation, the ending of criminal sanctions for possession offences came about in 2000 because there was a significant increase in the levels of drug use. Remember, Portugal was coming out of a dictatorship and a closed society. So this was something people could see on the streets, including injecting drug use. Um, And so it became a political that crisis created a political um, drive to, to, towards change. Like in Glasgow, the crisis has driven change. And my view is that the government should really be looking at the drug-related deaths as a crisis. And also we've got fentanyl on the market now. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of fentanyl. Does it have another name? No, it's a synthetic, can- oh, sorry, it's a synthetic op- opioid um, and it's a hundred times stronger than heroin. And then there's car fentanyl, which I think it's a either a thousand or ten thousand, I can't remember, sorry. But these are incredibly potent 
forms of synthetic opioids. And they've started to come on the market. And they're, they're one of the reasons we're seeing the really high rates of drug-related deaths, opiate-related deaths in the US. So we've started to see it come in this year. So the crisis we have in relation to drug-related deaths could turn into a, ca- a catastrophe if the government doesn't urgently do something about this. Now, the title of this podcast is Reasons to be Cheerful. So you <laughs> set out very, very eloquently what you see as the problems of the current system. Tell us what Release's solution is to the to the problem. So the first thing that we would like to see is decriminalisation. So ending criminal sanctions for personal use offences, as we've seen in Portugal. Uh, the reason that we believe that this is the starting point for reform is that the evidence from around the world, and we looked at 25 countries that had adopted this approach, more than 40 states within countries that have taken this approach either to cannabis or to all drugs. And what we found was that drug use did not increase. So this obsession by politicians around prevalence, it did not go up. But what we could evidence was also lots of really positive outcomes. So in terms of health, when Portugal introduced its policy, it found or it experienced a 40% drop in injecting drug use, uh, significant drops in HIV uh, transmission rates and AIDS, um, also a significant drop in drug-related deaths. And in fact, Portugal has one of the lowest drug-related deaths in Europe now. So there's these positive health outcomes. There's also the social outcomes. Research in Australia, three states in Australia have ended criminal sanctions for cannabis. Um, they unsurprisingly find that people who had been criminalised um, had negative experiences in terms of their accommodation, their employment um, and their relationships with their family. And looking at people who hadn't been criminalised, they were less likely to come in contact with the criminal justice system. We know first contact with the criminal justice system increases risks of criminalization. So when we talk about things like gateways, we would say that drug possession offences are a gateway into the criminal justice system. Right. So, so, so ju- just to explain, you're going to you're proposing decriminalizing possession of all yes, drugs. Yes, all drugs. What about the selling? In other words, so so you know, in America, for example, I know that um, you know you've got, I guess, companies who are sort of now you know going into this in relation to cannabis. I mean, how do you envisage the selling part of it? So we start with decrim. That's our first yeah. step. Then we start to look at regulation, um, and obviously, cannabis would be the first drug that would be regulated. We have experience from other countries. It's probably the least harmful of those drugs controlled under the, or one of the least harmful of the drugs controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, there is a big discussion within the drug policy movement around the corporate capture, if you like, of a lot of the work that we've done over the years, um, especially our partners in the US, like the Drug Policy Alliance, to push for cannabis regulation. So at my organisation, when we have these conversations, we really talk about trying to create a social justice model of regulation. And there's countries that we can learn from in respect of that. Spain, for example, has uh, cannabis social clubs uh, that have come. They're kind of quasi-legal. It's a result of a constitutional court decision there, which again, I'm happy to go into. But essentially, they are cooperatives. Uh, you have to be a member. There are age controls. There are product controls. Because you know what? I mean, one of the things that people, some people will worry about, well, okay, so maybe you haven't got the drug cartels quite in the same way, but you've got you know the multinationals that currently sell tobacco 
now all over the drug trade. Well, that's a really good point around the tobacco industry. I mean, I think we've learned from the tobacco industry. So we would be bringing a substance into a market. So you're cautious on the way you approach the selling part of it. Absolutely. Also, too, we could have quite strict state regulation around it. I mean, the state can control this. You know, it can put in things like taxation as it's done with tobacco. So they increase uh, taxation to deter use. There are, are, are tools that we can use in order to have better public health outcomes um, to make sure that people are using. But at the minute, it's kind of a, a wild west out there. Um, so I, 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 and the point is that the state doesn't have any of those tools at the minute. The state can't do good public health messaging around this. It can't make sure that the products that are available are the safest form of the product possible. So, it, you know, it's completely... And there is a real issue about street cannabis. Isn't oh, absolutely. I mean, all drugs probably, but street cannabis, people are talking about some of the effects of that. Absolutely, absolutely. So, that, I mean, the, the, the term used, which is a very insufficient term, but it's skunk. Um, I mean, again, more complex, but um, what we're seeing in lots of the street cannabis is high THC, um, which is a component in cannabis that causes the kind of psychoactive effect. It's the high. Um, and then another component is CBD. And it's a really interesting uh, part of the cannabis. Can- it's a cannabinoid within the cannabis plant. And it's antipsychotic. And the way prohibition has created a market that... Um, focuses on high turnover of the product. So we have a hydroponic market where cannabis is grown uh, in factories with intense lights um, in order to have a very high rotation of crop over a year. And that then breeds out the CBD, which is the natural protective element of cannabis. So when we talk about the concerns around Philip Morris, we can do more when we have a Philip Morris type approach. And I think we've learned from that in respect of tobacco and we're doing better with tobacco and we could apply that learning to cannabis we can't do that at the moment we have a um, an email from listener sarah dixon who says as a lib dem voter for mainly geographical reasons in the most recent election it weighed heavily on my conscience voting for a party that included the legalization of cannabis in their manifesto i don't think it's a very good idea at all like alcohol cannabis is a very powerful mind-altering drug um yeah, I could go into Sainsbury's right now and buy an unlimited amount of gin without issue. Uh, I would argue not that cannabis is too heavily regulated, but that alcohol is too mildly regulated. Um, while alcohol causes not only physical damage to the consumer, it also gravely affects others through antisocial behaviour, drink driving, etc. And it says when measured on the same scale, cannabis appears to be a safer drug um, with lower societal cost. In fact, it's still dangerous to the user, um, extremely psychoactive and can cause severe paranoia, anxiety and depression and she goes on to say that psychedelic drugs like LSD and MDMA are actually much safer and not toxic at active doses Um, and she she quotes David Nutt's Lancet article Yeah, first of all I would say there's lots of interesting points raised by Sarah in terms of alcohol and the lack of regulation and we would agree with that Um, In terms of toxicity of cannabis though I think that's probably not the case. I mean, cannabis is not a very, hasn't got very high levels of toxicity. We don't have drug-related deaths associated with cannabis. What about the mental health part of it? Well, and uh, yeah, you mean, there's certainly some evidence to suggest that um, it can cause psychosis. Um, I think a lot of this has been overhyped by certain elements of the media. Um, 
in particular the Daily Mail. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> you are allowed to say it. <laughs> Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness. Yeah. Um, so they say, for example, or there's reports that they say it increases um, schizophrenia. And actually the rates of schizophrenia have remained the same for the last 40 years. Cannabis use has increased exponentially over the last 40 years. If there was a correlation, I would suggest that we would see higher rates of schizophrenia. What it can do, though, is for those people who have got schizophrenia, it can bring the symptom. If they use cannabis, it can bring on early onset of the symptoms. Yeah. And, and then with psychosis, I think... Yes, we are seeing higher an, an increased number of cases coming through um, the health system. But again, that's to do with the product that's on the market, which is as a result of prohibition. So the high THC um, cannabinoid and the, the, the low CBD, that's the problem. We could actually, if we regulate it, we would increase the level of CBD. We would breed the cannabis in a way that has higher rates of CBD, that antipsychotic element in it, that protective element, in order to reduce the risks of mental health. And presumably, you know, the, the key thing in your argument here is your case about Portugal, for example, is it hasn't led to a rise in drug use. And I think even the Home Office study of 2014, uh, Theresa May and Norman Baker accepted that. So therefore, you, you're, you, you don't have to contend uh, to persuade us that that there's no harmful effect of cannabis, you, you you're just finding a way. You know how do you reduce the harm? Mm. You, I mean, presumably your contention is even if it does have harmful effects, net if it was decriminalized, there would be fewer harmful effects. Because of the nature of the cannabis, it wouldn't necessarily increase usage. If it was decriminalized, we'd simply be ending criminal sanctions. And if we end criminal sanctions, if people need support, they feel that they can come forward and get support because they're no longer labeled as criminals because of what they ingest. But it wouldn't yeah. affect the market. The market would still have that type of and cannabis. And you don't think there is this signaling effect? You don't think government saying it's okay, it's not criminal anymore, means that people are more likely to take it? Well, no, because as I said, we looked at 25 countries across the globe that had adopted this approach. We saw no increase in drug use um, in any of those jurisdictions. So that's just, it, it's, a, it's a false premise to say that if we take a different legal approach, and we have to remember we're not saying it's completely legal, we're saying we don't criminalize you anymore. And our choices on what we do, we could divert people to education programs, we could give them fines, although I don't necessarily agree with that. But we could put in some uh, responses, legal Portugal responses. Portugal has this very intensive engagement process with yeah. people. Absolutely. So they have a, a dissuasion commission that's made up of people who work in mental health, uh, lawyers, uh, drug specialists. And if you are caught in possession of drugs, you're brought to the dissuasion committee. They talk about why you're using drugs. If you use problematically, so if you have an addiction, you are referred to treatment. Does that if work in your view? that process in Portugal? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, if we look at the rates of drug use in Portugal, they're much lower than the UK. You know, the UK has had very high rates of drug use compared to its European partners. Um, and we criminalise people. So, like, we're not doing very well on this. Um, and as you say, the Home Office knows that this does not work. Now, let me ask you this. So, you've made the case for decriminalising cannabis, some people will agree with you on that, but then they'll wonder about going that step further to other harder drugs. Just explain your case there, that you know, that because in a way, you know, it, you go further than some people, obviously. Well, I think no. So the first point is decriminalization is ending criminal sanctions for all drugs. Then we look at regulation. That's legalization. Sure. So regulated markets start with cannabis. We look at MDMA and some of the other psychedelics that are relatively harmless um, when we compare them to 
alcohol, for example. Um, and there are ways that we can do it. So we can have tight regulation. So we have uh, dedicated shops that provide this, that you have to have age controls, that you could do a brief harm reduction intervention. But also remember that the product that you have is a product that will reduce the risk of harm. So at the moment with MDMA, as I said, we have very high um, purity rates. Um, so some tablets are containing up to 200 uh, yeah. MGs of MDMA, which is lethal. And heroin and cocaine? I mean, Well, we already have a regulated market for heroin and cocaine. It's called the medical model. <laughs> so we can actually prescribe diamorphine. Um, so in that sense, I mean, there are options and we would look at tighter regulations dependent on the harm. But at the end of the day, grown adults engage in harmful activities all the time. We have people jumping out of planes with parachutes on them. We make sure that those, uh, those businesses that are providing that experience are properly regulated. We make sure that they have equipment that's up to date. We make sure that the people who are jumping out of the plane at several thousand feet are as safe as possible. And at the moment, we don't do that. My final um, question is, you said we've been going backwards in the UK, but 50 years on from the uh, start of releases work and uh, to have the third plug of the podcast for, for your 50th anniversary... In a sense, you're probably quite optimistic, aren't you? In the sense that the international debate, I know at the UN it had its first kind of proper summit on drugs. There is a sense that the international debate is changing. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're seeing really um, positive reforms in many countries, not all countries. I mean, you just have to look at the Philippines to see, you know, the the, the slaughter that is going on there by President Duterte, uh, nearly 10,000 dead in a year, all in order to repress drug use. Um, but we are seeing lots of innovative um, approaches to policy reform. So across Europe, and it's not just recent, actually, you know, Spain and Italy decriminalized endocriminal sanctions for drug possession way back in the 80s and 90s. You know, the Netherlands in the 1970s, the Czech Republic in the 2000s. You know, there are many countries around the world, but I think probably some of the most exciting stuff is around cannabis regulation. You know, Canada is going to be the first G7 country to regulate cannabis. Um, it's a expected that the market will come into operation next year. And that's been absolutely um, driven politically on the basis of protecting young people, that we have to protect our young people from the harms of the illegal cannabis market. And the only way that we can do that is to take that drug and control it ourselves. So, you mean, yeah, there's lots of exciting things going on. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Now, Neve mentioned what's been happening in some of the American states. And for another insight into that, we're joined on the line from Colorado by Sam Kamen, who is a professor of marijuana law at Denver University. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So tell us, first of all, what was the change in the law in Colorado? So Colorado changed its state law in 2012 to permit the possession of small amounts of marijuana and to set up a regulatory regime for its production and sale. And what's the effect of the change in the law been since 2012? Well, I think that, uh, you know, it's it's gone off pretty well. We have, uh, since the start of 2014, 
uh, had uh, a number of retail stores that uh, sell marijuana and marijuana edibles and other products. Uh, in addition, uh, we have the production and farming of uh, marijuana has been licensed as well. Um, now, all of this happens, mind you, with the background of federal law still prohibiting marijuana in all contexts. So that's led to some complications. And, you know, some people will wonder as they look about what should be done in the UK, what advice you would give uh, people about whether this has reduced some of the harms that people see from uh, criminalizing uh, drug possession, whether it's led to dangers in itself of, of liberalizing the law. How do you see it? Sure. I mean, I think when people and, you know, we've had we've had media and press here from all over the world. I think people are mostly surprised at how little has changed here. Um, you know, with with apologies to Amsterdam, this is in Amsterdam that people, uh, you know, they, they come and they say, oh, we want to we want to get video of people uh, smoking marijuana and sort of, you know, uh, drug people walking through the, the streets. It's really hard to find that here, that it doesn't uh, it's not garish. It doesn't look uh, the way people expect it to. So I think that part has definitely been an upside. Probably the hardest piece has been the uh, edible products that uh, at first they weren't very well labeled, they weren't very well uh, dosed and measured. Uh, so people had unpleasant experiences where they would take too much and get into some trouble. Uh, and that's mostly been addressed over time through uh, regulation. And what would you say the benefits have been? Uh, I think the, the state has now collected uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in tax revenue. Uh, and you know what I think probably is the most important benefit uh, the state has largely, though not entirely, stopped arresting people for possession of marijuana. It's still illegal for minors to have it. It's still illegal for anyone but a licensed business to sell it. Uh, but it has meant a significant decrease in the amount of time that's spent uh, punishing marijuana users. And what about the fears about an increase in use, particularly among young people? You know, the, set, the so-called sending of a signal by the state that this is an OK thing to do makes it more likely people will will uh, use marijuana? Sure, I think that's a very uh, legitimate concern. Uh, the evidence hasn't borne that out yet, although we're, we're really just a few years in. Uh, the, um, you know, and I think the, it's, it's a question sort of best addressed through a uh, very targeted public health messaging, which is what our uh, De- Department of Public Health has done. So whether that's toward pregnant mothers, whether that's toward teens and young adults, uh, the idea is that you know there, there are there's a time and a place for everything, and and uh, marijuana use is not for uh, e- either expectant mothers or uh, people under the age of 21. And one of the interesting things about the Colorado experience is, I believe your governor, Governor Hickenlooper, began by saying this was going to be a very bad idea, and he's now somewhat changed his mind. Tell us a bit about that, and is that representative of? how other people in Colorado would feel. Sure, I think somewhat changed his mind is exactly right. He was an opponent. He said he didn't want Colorado. He said, you know, Colorado's a beautiful place. We have beautiful mountains and great weather and lots of uh, positives. I don't want us to be known for marijuana. And, you know, he he was, of course, uh, prescient on that. We are known for marijuana. Uh, If you get on a plane here, you talk to people from around the country, that's the first thing they want to talk about when they want to talk about Colorado. Um, But on the other hand, I think he's acknowledged that uh, the regulations have done their job that, uh, you know, the sky hasn't fallen, that Colorado is still an attractive place for uh, people to move to, to come visit. Uh, and it, it, if anything, the the city and the state have really continued to boom as we've uh, experimented with uh, marijuana uh, regulation and taxation. 
And what was the most important thing that your task force recommended to him when you were looking at the implementation of the law? So for for countries or, or states that are changing their law, what's the most important thing that came out of your work? Sure. I mean, I think the importance of doing regulation carefully and thoughtfully is really important. And that means everything from who gets licensed to how uh, and where uh, marijuana can be produced and sold. Um, you know, once we, we sort of realize early on, there's sort of an almost infinite number of regulatory questions that arise. You, you answer one and it raises five more. Um, so creating a regulatory regime uh, that was robust enough to to uh, deal with the black market and and uh, the diversion of marijuana to the black market. I think that was probably the the most important thing that we developed. And finally, as Britain, which has not obviously decriminalized, debates these issues, what what would be your? I'm not asking you to decide our policy for us, but what would your advice be to to sort of fair-minded people who are kind of sitting on the fence on this issue in Britain and, you know, are in one sense see that the current so-called war on drugs may not be working, but at another level worry about some of the public health effects of marijuana. What would your advice be? You know, I think the the principal advice I give people is don't do it for the revenue, that a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's tough budgetary times. We can do this and we'll save. We won't do any more law enforcement and now we'll be able to bring in all this tax revenue. It, it doesn't end up working quite that way. I think that there, uh, and I'm not an advocate, but you know, I think there are good reasons to uh, move from from prohibition to regulation of marijuana, whether that's the the law enforcement savings, whether that's a disparate impact on uh, particular communities uh, through uh, through drug enforcement, uh, whether it's individual liberty. There are lots of good reasons to do it. Getting the uh, enriching the state is not one of them. Um, that you know, you still have to do marijuana law enforcement, and regulations are expensive and complicated and an ongoing process. So, uh, you know, if if uh, you're for it, be for it, but don't be for it and don't sell it on the basis that it will save uh, mil- and and bring in uh, millions of dollars or pounds of revenue. I do actually have one other question, which is: Please. Is there a debate at all in Colorado about whether other so-called harder drugs should be decriminalized? I think that's something that's really looming on the horizon. Uh, you know, I, I'm leaving later this afternoon to attend a conference on uh, psychedelic drugs and their use and for, for medical purposes, whether for PTSD or depression, uh, end of life issues that there are, um, you know, that is sort of the next looming uh, controversy, I think, for, for drug decriminalization and, and legalization. You also have with the opiate crisis, uh, talk about harm reduction, whether having uh, safe injection uh, rooms, clean needles, and so forth, uh, can reduce the harms of uh, uh, of opiate use. Sam came in. Thank you so much for joining us and for telling us about the Colorado experience. A real pleasure. Thank you. So, what do you think then? What do you think about Neve's idea that it's better to re- concentrate on reducing the harm, not the prevalence? Are, are you in a different place to where, where you uh, were when I'm we started? I'm pretty convinced that you need to have change in this area. I don't exactly know what the change is, but I found Neve pretty convincing. And it'd be interesting to hear from listeners who disagree with her or, or those who agree with her. But look, the the the, the combination of the criminalization, uh, the um, driving underground of the sort of manufacture of it uh, and and the examples of other countries like Portugal and other places that don't seem to have uh, led to the kind of you know massive upsurge so, so, so in other words if you can if if you can defeat the argument that says decriminalizing 
means a lot more people are going to take it and it will be harmful. It seems to me you've removed one of the big barriers right. to change. And there isn't lots of evidence, even from the Home Office, that that does happen if you decriminalise. And there are quite a lot of advantages to it. Whether I'd go as far as she did, I'm not sure. Maybe you'd start with cannabis, you know, you'd tread cautiously. But I certainly I certainly think that it's high time. And I think most many politicians will know in their heart of hearts there needs to be change in this area. But they're too scared to talk about but, it. But probably too scared to talk about it. What do you think? I, th- I think sometimes in the public's mind, this um, this this legalization argument gets a little bit wrapped up with the free the weed people. Yeah, and it, it can be not taken seriously. But it, it makes a lot of sense to me because you can't uninvent drugs. I mean, they're just out there, and people will take them. And the the war on drugs, the the prohibition. It just doesn't work. It's been going on for decades and decades. It doesn't work. And it's such a huge global thing, the supply and production and so on. It it can't be enforced. So as a taxpayer, it's frustrating to me that we're wasting all this money on a type of law enforcement. And we haven't really talked, sorry to interrupt, but we haven't really talked about the sort of crime that probably results from people trying to feed their habit. Well, this is it. I'm trying to think of it not just in a kind of, um, in in a free the weed way, but... as a taxpayer, that that law enforcement money is really expensive and it doesn't work. Also, there are societal problems around drug use, um, like crime, people not being able to get uh, people, you know, uh, at the the bottom end of the social ladder who are, are, are committing crime in desperation to get money uh, to to buy drugs and so on. There are mental health issues. Um, there's there's a cost to the taxpayer around that, I guess. Um, and, and health, you know, physical health. So it just makes sense to me that if all that stuff was was brought into the state, the, the money could be ploughed back into helping fix those problems. And I tell you what I liked about what Neve said and Sam said, which is that you, know, you might decriminalise possession of cannabis, but you're not going to have a free-for-all in the sort of marketing. You, you're not going to allow sort of Philip Morrisization. No, well, if you think it, about the way it's gone know. with tobacco. Yeah, you got, you know, you got to, yeah. you'd have to, you have to be very, very tightly regulated. And, you know, Sam said it's not like, you know, um, no offence to the Netherlands, but, you know, it's not it, it's not the free the weed free-for-all that some people would, would think about. It's not the state saying, hey, man, let's get high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that, and I think that is um, important. But I think it's a re- it is a good debate to have, and it's the kind of thing the podcast should be doing because it's things that frontline politicians, for good reasons, actually, find it hard to tackle. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, share your thoughts on the the drugs policy stuff we've been talking about. Some big ideas there, and um, already you tweeted about it earlier in the week. Lots of people, lots of people replying, and we'll read some of them out next week. Yes. Um, Some other stuff that's come in. Chris Richardson emails a photograph. Um, He says, here's my reason to be cheerful. And it's an Ed Millifone. Look at that. Do you want to describe that? Do you think you should make me cheerful? It's got me on the phone. Mm. It's obviously the screensaver. And then I've got a little tea cozy sort of on the iphone so this isn't something you can buy in the shops no it's special (laughs) it's specially done but is it is it chris it is chris yeah my new ed millifone i think it beats the millie cap anyway (laughs) (laughs) at least it doesn't sound like a contraceptive to repeat last week's joke (laughs) um how do you look at a hat but are you much of a terrible Well, I don't I know. honestly look terrible. I'm looking at this one that Chris has made, and it's got a tea cozy no, I can't wear. To it. I honestly can't wear hats. Oh, maybe. I don't know why. Well, I'd, do you wear hats? You know, when I'm cold. No, but like stylish hats. I don't know, in the summer. Trilby. In the summer, I've been known to wear a Well, you were hat. actually tweeting some of you and Sarah, because for the other podcast you do, uh, that you were, that with Annabelle is off, obviously, after having had her baby, you, you were tweeting some pretty strange pictures of you and Sarah in hats, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, so my wife co-hosted the other podcast this week, and um, I, I thought... The other I, podcast in his <laughs> life. I thought I will share some um, intimate, fo- not explicit, <laughs> I just want to be clear here, but some in- <laughs> intimate photos from my uh, marriage. Digging deeper. And uh, she she wasn't happy about it. I thought, you know, as ever, best to do it first and then ask permission later, right? Indeed. Yes. And you've brought Lyka along this week. I think you should tell Lyka's another woman in your life. Lyka is another woman. Lyka is my miniature schnauzer of whom I have joint custody with my ex which delights my wife no end she finds it a delightful she setup. is actually a very cute dog mm. we're gonna post a picture of the two of us lovingly with like her aren't we <laughs> i think we're running out of things to post on social media yeah exactly <laughs> yes. we um, might have the dog on as a guest <laughs> is it really getting that diet? yeah exactly um an email here from sam frampton who says what i wanted to ask was given the increase in attention given to politics by young people where do you stand on politics being taught in high schools uh, it's something i've wanted for a while and i usually get told that students could be influenced to be more partisan to a party but i want to see it taught in a more matter of fact way for example popular voting system 
systems, how our MPs serve or attempt to, how government operates, and the fundamentals of each political space on the spectrum. Would you like to see something put in place, given the amount of wasted time we see in schools? This is interesting this week because you've kind of um, you've had the news about a government minister writing to the universities to find out just what they're teaching on the subject of of Brexit. That kind of blurring of politics and education. Yeah, I mean that that was terrible. But but I, we've also had one from Jeremy Ullman. He says on the same theme, seeing that the main form of education we receive after finishing school is the news media, and it's not known to be a bastion of truth, isn't it time we introduce compulsory political education in secondary schools? And not the joke that is citizenship, but a form of education which will make the general public less susceptible to manipulation once they become a voting age. Also agree it should be lowered. And actually, it's, it's sort of timely because this coming Friday, we're going to be debating a private member's bill, so a bill bought, bought by a backbench member of parliament, Jim McMahon, to lower the voting age to 16. I'll be in the House of Commons supporting that. And I think that both of our listeners are right that this has got to be accompanied by political education. When you ask when you ask um, young people in schools what kind of citizenship education they get, they generally say it's not been very good mm. or not very extensive. And, you know, it is about schools not just being about passing exams, but preparing people to be members of society, democracy. And if you don't educate people early, and lots of voters you meet say, oh, I don't vote, I don't really understand it. Yeah. Now, you know, how do you counter that? Schools is obvi- obvious way to do it. Do you think this bill stands any chance? I think it might do, because I think he's quite high up in the ballot. So in other words, it's one of the early private members' bills. There's going to be a big turnout of Labour MPs and I guess other parties as well. I don't know about the Conservatives, but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. That's quite exciting. Yes, it is quite exciting. Um Another email we had, which I thought I'd quickly get into, it relates to something from last week. This comes from Bieber Stanton, uh, who says, My partner recognised and said hello to Ed at the theatre recently, and I'm told he was extremely friendly. So this contradicts the email we had last week. It does. And if you're listening, Prezenja Lal, (laughs) I did apologise to you last week. You did, uh, and I also... But not acknowledging you at the theatre. I offered on Ed's behalf a, a, an evening out to the theatre. What if we... What if well, Ed, I don't think I agreed to Ed the evening out, to be fair. What if Ed threw a slap-up meal? I don't, what if he brought you a slice on, of his cheesecake? Uh, but, but I think Prezenjit, we just want to make sure... I think we might have to keep apologising... I might have to keep apologising to Prezenjit each week <laughs> until we get an acknowledgement <laughs> that the apology has been accepted. What do you think? I think so. Yeah. Um, so share your thoughts. You can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast or look us up on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Total opportunism. He is behaving like a student politician and frankly that's all he'll ever be. Ed Miliband. Oh, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker. I, I was a student politician. But I, uh, but I wasn't hanging around with people who are throwing bread rolls and wrecking restaurants. Labour MPs are delighted. They're waving their order papers. What is this clip and, and how often is this going around in your head as a, a great moment of triumph? Well, I looked very long and hard to find one good moment of PMQs that I had <laughs> and I found it. And the reason I played that clip is that we are joined, I'm delighted to say, by 
the maestro of PMQs, stand-up comic, all-round lovely person, Aisha Hazarika. Hello! Hello! So nice to have you. Aisha suffered for four and a half years with me through can, Prime Minister's can you, questions. Can you talk me through how it would go? So, firstly, like Ed wouldn't want to come out of his house on a Wednesday <laughs> morning. He'd be, please don't make me come out. He'd be like, honestly, why am I doing this? Honestly, <laughs> oh, oh, honestly, oh, God. Can't, can't we speak to the speaker? Just get it abolished. Honestly, we've got to change the narrative on this. Honestly, the public hate it. You're very good. <laughs> I believe you're on tour. <laughs> you're here all week. I basically spent so much time with Ed. Like yeah. he's the only person I can properly mimic now. <laughs> it's very impressive. Basically, it was we'd start Monday. We'd start so early, and mm. what would happen is like the seasons would change. Like day would turn to night. People would grow beards. Like you know, we'd be exiting the EU. I mean, the the prep was. Was long and hard, wasn't it? It was long, arduous. It must be frustrating because you must write a load of material that never gets used. Yes, we did. We always had loads of, like, we had a sheet of jokes, didn't we? We had a sheet of something. I had a sheet of what you called rejoinders. Because Tony Blair said to me right early on, look, what matters about PMQs is not the argument. What matters is the joust. Which reflects well on British politics. Which doesn't reflect well on PMQs. And, you know, it's always about your rejoinders. And Aisha was absolutely brilliant at the rejoinders, and I was absolutely useless at delivering no, them in general. No, 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 no. Uh, you, you, you know, 99% of the time, Aisha was absolutely brilliant. I mean, there was, should we talk about hush puppies? <laughs> yeah. Is this the 1%? So we had, a long, we had a long argument which lasted about four and a half years. About It was early on. And what was the actual line? So it was a joke about, we were trying to do a joke about Ken Clark saying something nasty about David Cameron. And the line was going to be, it's not that funny, but it's a traditional political phrase of get your tanks off my lawns. Yeah. My lawn. Get- and so are we going to say get your hush puppies off my lawn because he was famed for wearing hush puppies? And I was like, honestly, I trust me, this joke is going to absolutely <laughs> nail it. People are going to be rolling in the aisles. It's going to be like amazing. You'll become prime minister because of this. Joke. I mean, they'll probably call an election. Like, seriously. The government will fall no confidence. <laughs> like, nothing could go wrong. So poor Ed gets to his feet majestically and with a great time he does the hush puppies and then literally there is like tundra like <laughs> it is like comedy tundra that, I came back and said Aisha didn't go that well I don't think and, then, and I said yeah but Ed, the line was really good you delivered it really badly and then next time in PMQ prep every time I tried to make a joke that wasn't funny Ed would just go Aisha I've got two words for you hush puppies <laughs> And you were right, it was a rubbish joke because then I tried it out on someone else. I made Harriet Harman do it in the House of Commons as well. And again, what? so you, you put it back out there. I know. After it failed you so dismally. I know. I thought, I thought, no, look, no offense, I thought it might be new. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, if I just give it one more go, you know what I mean? One more heave. One more heave. And it, it, it was just a really terrible joke. And I do apologize. But most of your jokes were, 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 were brilliant. But the bread rolls was, did, we, we practiced the bread rolls, didn't we? We did. Because what we would do is we would anticipate all the horrible things that David Cameron There was might a very think. nice chap called Tom Hamilton who played David Cameron. Uh, did he do the voice? No. Uh, he was just he didn't do the voice, he was generally he was very more good. nasty to me than David Cameron was, actually, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, he's quite tough, Tom. He was quite good. He was very good at stepping into the role. And he was very good at predicting what Cameron would say. Like, he had a very good high strike rate. Yeah. And so we'd, we'd practice it and, and then we'd sort of get the rejoinders. Um, but, but 
we never spent enough time on the rejoinders. I always kept saying, well, what's the argument? What's the argument? <laughs> and sometimes, right, when we really, like, when there was a sort of a topic that Ed didn't want to do, like, it was a tough topic or it was, like, the same thing, there was... Ed would go back to some like sort of pet subjects that you like, and one of them was like the agricultural wages. Oh yes, board, exactly. I was very annoyed. Which, which so they like abolished the issue. agricultural wages board and said, "Can't we?" Because it was a minimum wage for agricultural workers, and I never got anywhere with my team about so, the agricultural wages board. We climate. Through. What about doing climate change? No. <laughs> and sometimes, like we'd go through an entire list of things we could do, and Ed would just pipe up at the end. Agricultural wages board. Anyone oh, ever be like, Ed, let know. it go. You'll, you'll it be go. glad to hear that he's not suggested an episode on that yet. But oh, give it time. Sure it's coming. Jeff, That's quite a good thought, get, actually. Get Hillary Benn in. Very important, the Agricultural Wages Board. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and then poor benighted members of the Shadow Cabinet used to have to come in and brief me. And then they'd sort of, and basically, you know, they, it would be a hostage situation. <laughs> they would be sort of locked away. It would normally be on a Tuesday night and they'd sort of say, oh, I've due to wash my hair or something and they'd never be able to get away and by the time they left they'd have no hair left yeah it would be <laughs> it was but i have to say ed was i think you're doing yourself down i think you did a good performance and so i'm actually I look back at some of them today i actually thought i was better than i remember totally totally especially let's Jewish be honest the, 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 the quality of pmqs is not exactly like super high at the moment and tom and i tom and hamilton and i are writing a book on pmqs and we've been interviewing lots of people and actually a lot of the Conservatives say that you were really good and you gave them a really hard I mean, time. It goes through these... The other thing that Tony Blair said to me about PMQs, which is so imp- such an important thing and people don't get, is what defines whether PMQs are successful or not is actually what's happening outside the House of Commons chamber on PMQs Day. Uh, in other words, what's the political atmosphere? Because if the political atmosphere is you're like on the floor, it's very hard to triumph at PMQs. Whereas if you're on the up, yeah. It actually goes a lot better. Now, even you can fight against that, but it is really hard. If the if the mood is with you, yeah. you kind of... Uh, if it's not, as um, one of Bruce Gokult, who was one of the... He was in the House of Lords, he was, you say, if 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 the wind's not with you, it's like pushing water uphill. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, and he, he did PMQs for Neil Kinnock, uh, Gordon Brown. Yeah. Uh, no, no, Neil Kinnock, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, you, and then me. Yep, Harriet. Harriet. Um, yeah. So he did it, did it for a long time. Um, but, but you know, we went through these phases. So remember the phase when we would ask Cameron very specific questions. You know, one of the things about Cameron was he didn't really know any of the detail. And we got, got to this thing where we would start asking him, you know, how many infrastructure projects that you promised a year ago have you actually... Li-? And it was, an, it was a nightmare for them, yeah. actually. Yeah. Because it was sort of specific. I think the thing I would most think about PMQs is that specific is much better than general... And sort of windy because right. general and windy never w- gets wind you is never good in where, where, <laughs> just it doesn't get you anywhere. Wind. And also, Cameron was very good at bluster, and so it would be he would sort of bluster his way out out of stuff. Whereas the more specific we were, the yeah. better. Yeah, yeah. And also, you had some. I mean, the one also I remember, which was you know, it's quite hard to properly break news and change things at PMQs. But one of the ones you did, which had a really profound effect, was around the phone hacking. Yeah. You know, you had some, yeah. you know, that was a big and he was moment. Very, yeah. We knew he was very, very on the defensive. Yeah. Very on the defensive. And when you'd have a moment like the bread roll one, I mean, would you just feel so triumphant afterwards? Would you be held aloft by your fellow Labour MPs? Well, you know, basically, if it went well, you walk back to your office and all these people are putting their thumbs up and saying, great. And if you goes badly, all <laughs> oh, you, you know, it's like literally people would not want to sort of look you in the face. They would sort of, you know, suddenly get into an animated conversation <laughs> with their mobile phone. <laughs> 
you know, it was just you knew exactly how it had gone from yeah. people's reaction. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's so people just have such a visceral reaction to it. And actually, I think remember it is confrontational because it's the moment when sort of two tribes come together. Go and to politics war. is, you know. I, it's passionate and some of the issues that you're debating really matter to people. So, you know, people want to see their boss and their leader do well. So, you know, when you had good days and when there was crack, good cracks at Cameron and stuff, people loved it. You know, you see the people people leaving the chamber and they've but got a spring is, in their step. But there is a great quiet. irony, Aisha, to it, which is that I don't think PMQs does anyone any good. I think it's very bad for the Prime Minister if he or she is on the ropes um, and I think it's mo- maybe it has. M- I don't think it has does benefit to the leader of the opposition when they're doing well. It sort of keeps the dogs at bay, but doesn't really do more than that, does it? Nobody makes their reputation as a leader or a prime minister on PMQs. I think it's very hard to just use PMQs as the barometer of whether you're going to be prime minister or not. But I think it, it's a very important party management tool, and I think actually people, m- not so much members of the public, but I think members of your own party, they feel quite proud if their leader does well or makes an effort to do well. But Haig was brilliant at PMQs and used to defeat Tony Blair all the time. Bruce always used to say, you know, oh, we'd say, oh, no, but but did Haig no good at all? He was quite an anomaly, though, in the sense that I think most people who are quite good at PMQs, it does show that they've got quite strong sort of leadership qualities. But... That is slightly changing because the tone of PMQs has changed. I think Jeremy has done quite a good job in terms of just bringing down the heat on it. I still think at the end of it all, I know everyone moans about it and says it's too yaboo and everything, but it is very unique to our democracy. And I think there is something really important about the Prime Minister coming to take questions which are not scripted, not prepared on any subject from any member of the House. Imagine Donald Trump doing it. Exactly. I think you would feel differently about it if you'd managed to deliver that hush puppy line properly. I know. <laughs> it, would just, it all went have wrong. A more triumphant... It all went wrong on the hush puppies. I know. <laughs> I am still haunted by that. No, I'm no. determined to try and make that work somehow. I, I will go to my grave regretting that. I'll try and use it again, Aisha. Please Aisha. don't let it lie. <laughs> just let it lie. You've, you brought some ideas with you. Let sleeping puppies uh. Um, so, so, yeah, so these are some of my ideas about what would make the world a better place okay, and um, make politics better. So I think this would just make life general and better for everybody. Have two dishwashers next to each other in the house. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your mind here. I've got a double dishwasher. What? Two drawers that work independently of each other. Does that mean you never have to unstack the dishwasher? Yes, it does. My mind is blown. <laughs> Where does that leave you if you have two kitchens? <laughs> 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 it's too soon, Ed. It's too soon. <laughs> did you have to? Did you have to mop up after that particular incident? Mopping up being the operative word. Why? Anyway, let's go back to two dishwashers. What? What? Because then you never see. I hate unstacking the dishwasher, and if you have two next to each other, then you never technically have to properly unstack one. You just put it in the other. You, you always use have. it as a cupboard almost. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You are the... Can you be Prime Minister? I think this man needs to be Prime Minister. I don't, we've, we've used the word Jeffocracy before now. Ed, Ed coined I mean, that I, phrase. I, the way I put it is the only thing worse than a dirty dishwasher is a clean one. I mean, the clean dishwasher is a nightmare, isn't it? What do you mean? Well, it's like the clean dishwasher. You've got to empty the dishwasher. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you meant like a... Uh, hygienically clean. Yes, that's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's a really good... No, exactly. That's my okay, point. Okay, two dishwashers. Okay, okay so that's, that's, that's the first One thing. kitchen, two dishwashers. I also find that the, the single most exhausting 
task is when the dishwasher light comes on and says you've got to put salt in it. Oh. Why does that oh, feel oh, like oh. such a Herculean effort? That is a nightmare. Yeah. And then there's rinseed. Oh. oh. <laughs> it's like you're having a bad day when the rinseed. And, and who has rinseed ever really? in the house? You're mm. like, oh, God, I've got to go buy some rinseed. Mm. No, it's like that is a job to do. Okay, we buy the two dishwasher. Okay, okay yeah. that's good. Okay, the other thing that I would do is I think I would dispense and make mandatory free karaoke for everybody. That's oh, really so good, Aisha. I've, I've tried to tempt Ed into the world of karaoke before now with, with no, no success. I have witnessed the great man doing karaoke. Really? What about me, though? <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 it was... It was our right when I first started working for you. When you yeah. first became leader of Labour Party, you had an office party in your office in the House of Commons in Norman Shaw, and we did karaoke. It was basically round a computer in your office, and we even were doing. Are you sure, the- I wasn't typing PMQ. <laughs> no, you were like, wait a minute, I'll do <laughs> wait this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Agriculture. Hush I'm going to knock puppy. out six hush on the puppy. agriculture. That'll work. That'll work. Uh, so, so, can you remember a song? Yeah. Do you know it's Christmas time? Oh, yeah, we, we did the yeah, and we, Did he get to do the Bono line? He did all the lines. <laughs> but the best thing was, was Ed pretending to have the cans on. Yeah, that was, he, the, that, that was my good that was That was his moment. Okay. I've gone into retirement since I did that take on me, the ha-ha <laughs> thing on, on, on the last leg. I don't think I can do any better than that. Yes, you, you've, got, you've got to come back out. What, what do you sing in karaoke? Oh, I sing a lot. Me so too. I sing, I love Carly Simon, Nobody Does It Better. That's one of mine! No way! Yes! Right, we are so going out. Okay, so karaoke for everybody. <laughs> I think it would be very good for everyone's bonding. I think it would be good for community cohesion. I think it would be good for your mental health. Where would you Where would you put them? Parks? I'd put them like... Outdoors. Outdoor barbecues in Australia are absolutely brilliant. What about outdoor karaoke? I think outdoors is quite hard. I think you need a bit of a booth. You need mm. a bit of a booth. Booth, so karaoke booth. In, in like everywhere, schools, hospitals, libraries. libraries, workplaces. It definitely is a way of the community coming together, isn't it? And you know what? It, everyone loves singing. What if you can't sing? No, I don't doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There's, there's something in... There's, there's something that's triggered something in, in the, the brain by... Yeah. yeah, that's another one. Uh, by humans singing together. It releases something in the brain and of course for centuries people would go to church and, and do that and as we become more secular we don't do that anymore it's thing we, or something. Thing, yeah it's the thing we're missing out on yeah it's it's the way to bring people together and also makes people appreciate music and gives people confidence i would want all young people to have karaoke. confidence that's good okay. yeah because then there's music okay. confidence the arts all that sort of stuff karaoke price freeze maybe karaoke for all karaoke for all karaoke credits oh yeah nice okay okay and then my final one would be, okay, this is a bit kind of counterintuitive, but I think we are all overwhelmed by choice. So mm. I think we should restrict choice of things generally. Like, not like life choices, but stuff like toothpaste. Cereals. Cereals, sandwiches. and You know, when you go and you're just Not to, podcasts. Definitely <laughs> not podcasts. No, but we could like, we could just be the only, we could like have a monopoly on, on podcasts. I think there's too much choice in the world. So, so even you, when you just go and buy a toothpaste, you're like looking at everything, just going, oh my God, like why is there like 500 There's even of- choice in Nurofen these days. I mean, yeah. you know, how much choice is there in Nurofen, ibuprofen, all I buy, those I buy the one which has the most red lines coming out of the head, whichever one has the most... It looks like they've been eating. What else? Bread. What are the other choices that overwhelm you? Toothpaste? Um, everything overwhelms me. Like coffee, trying to buy coffee is now overwhelming because it's like, 
what sort of white milky substance do you want? And you, you could just have, you know, you could you want something from a cow? Do you want something from oat? Oat milk? What is oat milk? Who is like milking, milking the, the teat of the oat? I don't understand. Almond milk. I don't, there's too much choice. It just does my head in. You would have done well in East Berlin, I think, back in the day. I, I just all, me and Angela. <laughs> <laughs> We were just a lovely time. I see you as a sort of perfect couple, actually. I'm obsessed with Angela Merkel. I love her. Because? I just think she's amazing. I think You went and defended her on Question Time I and did. you shouted down some horrible ranty pants man, didn't yeah, you? <laughs> I should have said that to him. Oh, he's not being such a ranty pants. He was like, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. She's a, she's a communist. I was like, she's definitely not a communist. Like, boy, she might be many things. She's definitely not a communist. Um, no, I think she's amazing. And um, when I got taken to Berlin... Uh, by CNN to do a big special. It was because you're a special correspondent for CNN. I know, I felt, I in like, rather a sort of strange turn of events. <laughs> hey Ed, I'm on your podcast, dude. <laughs> this is not what any of us planned. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? I just, you know, you're you're the new Christian. I'm on Paul. Is that I'm right? not. I'm like Bridget Jones. <laughs> they ring me up and they're like, "Hi, Aisha, we're going to send you to Berlin to like, cover the German elections." I'm like, "Oh, their elections going on." <laughs> winning (laughs) (laughs) who came back but i think she's amazing i think she's stood the test of time i think for a kind of woman in politics she's done incredibly well and as i said on question time i think in a world full of like demented man babies i think this woman is a sort of she's like the proper moral authority in the world right now and i think her stance on you know, refugees was really good. And it wasn't just her being open-hearted, it was her being quite hard-headed as well because Germany has a low birth rate, immigrants work really hard. So I'm a massive fan of Angela Merkel. Be more Angela, that's my that's my. And talking of moral authority, how do people get to see you in stand-up? I'm sure they'll like what they've heard today. (laughs) How do they? How do they hear more? How do they hear the magic? The woman who brought you the hush puppy joke. <laughs> That's going to be on my gravestone. So um, my tour is called State of the Nation. Where are you in the coming week, Aisha? Uh, I don't really know. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> I don't if you want to know about Aisha's tour, you can find it. Uh, Not by asking on, me on the inter- on the interweb. Uh, Aisha, it's been great to have you. It's uh, oh, you know. I've loved Brought it. back all the memories. You've gone giddy. Yeah, I yes. know. We love Aisha. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Thanks to Aisha. Her tour is called State of the Nation. Go and see her live. And thanks to our other guests too. Yeah, and thanks to Neve Eastwood and Sam Kamen. Very interesting discussion. And I can't help but suspect that this this whole thing, Ed, has been a construct um, for, for you to encourage decriminalisation of marijuana so that you can then move into the cannabis industry with a range of marijuana lollipops called Ed's Edibles. Do you think it'll catch on? Possibly so. I have thought about a chain of coffee shops. What would you call those? Ed's. <laughs> That's Ed's inventive. coffee. Um. We would love to hear from you if you've got an idea for a guest for a future podcast or an idea we could talk about. Uh, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast or on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful. Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Feisbryce and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer, James Deacon, made our iDense music by Ed Seed, and our artwork was designed by Emily Power. Okay, are you ready here? I am. Here we go. He has been Jeff Lloyd. (laughs) He has been 
Ed Miliband. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>